0: Shalane Flanagan, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast.
1: Hey, Mario. It's awesome to be here.
0: So right now, we're about seven and a half weeks out from Boston. It's a little past noontime for you right now. Take me through your day to this point. What did your morning look like? What time did you get up? What type of workout did you do before you jumped on the phone here with me?
1: Yeah. So I'm about day 11 into my altitude camp. I'll be here um in Woodland Park, Colorado, just outside of Colorado Springs, uh, for five weeks to establish a lot of miles, a lot of good hard running. Um so I'm in the time frame of which I would call like the doldrums and the grind. Um between day 10 and 15 altitude, I tend to feel really awful. So this is a nice little uh <laughs> escape from my um just kind of feeling really sorry for myself and, and tired, but um I embrace this time period because I know it makes me super strong, but I don't love it. Um, in the sense that I'm just, you know, everyday activities feel really um kind of arduous and hard. So like I'll call my husband, I'll be like, oh, I have to unload the dishwasher. This is gonna be awful. And he's like, You got this, you can you can unload the dishwasher today. (laughs) But uh yeah, so today uh specifically I got up. I usually get up between like six and six thirty. I'm kind of a morning person. And I get, uh, my coffee going, uh, my breakfast, um, make sure I'm pretty fueled for the day, especially at altitude. I find that I'm really hungry, um, a lot all the time. And so I got to make sure I go into my runs and practices pretty, uh, pretty full because I typically in the morning will have a bulkier run. So definitely between like 72 minutes at the minimum, um, up to like 96 minutes, um, and then I'll come back on evening for a little bit of a shorter run. But at this point I'm logging my high mileage and which for me, that means like, um, 120 miles a week, Jerry miles. So, um, that would probably be closer to like 135 in in real mileage. So it's a lot of running. So I get fueled up. Um, I drove down to Colorado Springs. It's been pretty cold here actually. And, uh, I think it was like 10 degrees when I met up with, uh, my training partner right now, Gwen Jorgensen, she and I went out and ran by Colorado college. Um, she ran 72 minutes and I ran 88 minutes. And then I followed that up with uh, a gym session and then lunch. And then I'll, uh, after I chat with you, I'll head down for a nap. Uh, if I can, sometimes I, I just lay there <laughs> and read, um, and then uh, I'll get back out for an evening run. And if it's, uh, it's snowing right now, but hopefully it'll stop and I can get out and run on the roads or uh, trails. But if not, I'll have to head over to the gym and, and hit up a treadmill. I haven't gotten injured in the snow last winter. I am super cautious about the surfaces that I run on. And if there's a chance of any kind of like black ice, I, I definitely just would rather go run on the treadmill and, and do it that way. But I'll have this evening about like a 56 minute run. So,
0: so there's a lot to unpack right there. So we'll take (laughs) one element at a time. You're very specific in the duration of your runs. You're going to 72 minutes to 96 minutes. You mentioned Jerry miles. What are Jerry miles for those uh, listening who don't know and why so specific on the duration of your run? Just not an hour or an hour and a half, 72, 96, 88. Those are very specific numbers. So can you explain that a little bit for the listeners?
1: Yeah. So my coach, Jerry Schumacher devised, um, uh, a way to measure mileage back at when he was at Wisconsin and he called them badger miles. And I refused to call them badger miles cause I'm a tar heel. So <laughs> when I joined, uh, the Bowerman track club, uh, back in the day, I was Jerry's first female athlete. And so all the men convert their mileage just for the sake of argument. He counts all their mileage at seven minute miles. And with the women, um, it's eight minute miles. So that being said, all of my runs, so an 80 minute run is 10 miles. Now, if you were to GPS, if you were to wear, which I don't wear a GPS because I don't want to know um, <laughs> that I'm shortchanging myself in my uh, in my running log, but I probably am going to guess on average run 11 to 11 and a half miles in those 80 minutes. But for the sake of just argument and measuring it, that's just how we uh, measure our mileage. And, you know, some days in marathon training, I I definitely am running some eight minute miles and um, that's okay because I find that in the end, it all kind of evens out. And there's definitely some days where I'm running quite slow. And then there's some days I feel great and I'm running average of 630 mile pace. But um, in the end, if you want to become a good distance runner, I believe it's about time on your feet. And so it's just, just a way for us to measure it, but we call him Jerry miles now. And, um, so yeah, when I write down in my running log that I ran 120 miles a week, I know for sure I'm running over 130, which that's fine. I'm good with that. <laughs> so
0: you had just mentioned that your training partner right now is Gwen Jorgensen. I know she's been hanging around the Bowerman babes for a little while now. Um, is she the only person out training with you? And, you know, for you, she's an Olympic gold medalist, albeit in triathlon. Like what does she bring to the table at this point of your career? And at this point of your Boston buildup?
1: Yeah. So, uh, my, my schedule is not in sync with the rest of the Bowerman babes, Bowerman women. They have focused on the indoor track season and the world championships. And Amy is focusing on the Tokyo marathon coming up this Saturday. So as a result of Gwen coming off of just having a baby six months ago, uh, she and I and our fitness kind of overlapped nicely. Just as I was coming back from uh, recovering from New York, uh, she was coming off of having had Stanley. And so um, it was kind of a perfect matchup starting in like January where we were both getting back in shape. And essentially, as long as she was proving enough and showing enough uh, fitness, um, she was wanting to kind of dip her toe into this altitude training and so for me it was i was so thrilled that jerry thought it was a good idea that uh, gwen and her family come up here and kind of go through um the stages of what it takes to be uh on the national and or international stage of marathoning and so she is basically doing um the same program as me right now but just modified um her body is not totally letting her get in the big miles that requires some marathoning, but she's putting in, you know, some really good solid work. So she's not doubling nearly as much, um, in terms of running. But the thing that Gwen has that clearly she's really great at is her discipline and dedication and hard work. And, uh, she is not afraid to put in the time and energy into her training. So while I'm out doing my second run, she's in the pool swimming or hopping on a bike Um, getting in that other cardiovascular component to the training. Um, But the key thing for her is eventually trying to get her legs callous to the big miles, which I have no doubt she'll be able to do as long as her body um, can uh, handle that pounding. But Gwen is uh, like a dream athlete to work with because like I said, coming from the triathlon, she is used to really long days of training and being fatigued and that groundhog kind of grinding mentality. So she uh, she's really like a great uh, person to have around in this kind of an environment where that's what uh, that's what it's all about right now to try to be one of the best marathoners.
0: And she just ran a 15, 15 five K on the track. Her first race back since, pregnancy taking a significant chunk of time off her personal best are you surprised at all by how quickly her running legs have come around and how much progress she's made in in just this short amount of time on on somewhat limited training
1: yeah i mean if you had said six months ago after she had stanley that gwen in six months was going to run fifteen fifteen, i wouldn't i don't know that i would have said like that that was going to be feasible at the time um but having seen her work ethic prior while she was pregnant, how much she trained, I thought, you know, this, this woman is a beast. Like she is all in and wants to be really great. So I knew that that was a component of just whether her body was going to hold up to it. But yeah, you know, she and I did the bulk of our training leading up to that 15, 15 together. So, um, she's not really at the point in training where she's leading many of the reps, but, um, so I'm, I'm helping her along and getting, you know, pushing her boundaries and her fitness and, so I knew what shape I was in based on the few races that I ran this indoor season and based on that I could extrapolate like heading into that race like I I had a feeling she could run between like 1510 and 1525. Um so I wasn't shocked at the time. Um I know she's she and I are similar in the sense that we can train really solid but when you put a racing bib on us and you uh have a starter's gun and a finish line tape there's like this extra level of uh Performance that comes out of us. So I knew that even though our training was decent, mediocre, um, nothing to write home about, I knew that once she got out there, that she would um, put together actually a pretty good race.
0: Let's talk about the rest of your Bowerman Track Club training group for a minute. I mean, it's easily the most robust group of competitive women in the US right now, if not the world. And when you started working with Jerry back in 2009, I mean, it was just you for a while um, and it was just you for, you know, a few more years. And then Emily came in and now there's Amy Craig and there's Colin Quigley and Shelby Houlihan and Kate Grace. And I know I'm missing a, a bunch Mereo right there. Hall, yeah. Yep. I mean, you can go just down the list. Courtney I mean,
1: yes, yeah.
0: seven Olympians in Rio Um And I mean, you kind of kickstarted that. And now, I mean, even with someone like Gwen coming in to train with you, you're mentoring her a little bit. You've mentored these other women. Like how gratifying has it been for you to see kind of that group come together and maybe for you to step back and see the impact and influence that you've had on their careers and uh, on the group's success as a whole?
1: Yeah, um, I am so happy that Jerry allowed us to grow. Uh, When I started out, he had told me that I was going to be the only female that he was going to coach because he didn't think he was cut out to coach women. And I think he had kind of stereotyped women and thought that they were a headache. And, um, and he said, well, you know, Shalane, you're more like a dude. So that's why we work like why we're okay to work together. Um, And he meant that as a, really as a compliment, obviously, but uh, I broke him down because I think we, had got to a point where, I told him it was either I'm probably not going to continue in this sport if I don't have some teammates, some other women. I mean, having men around is great. Like I used to compare all my workouts to Chris Zelensky, and that would be my motivation. Um, and not that, you know, you should be comparing yourself to other athletes every single day, but I needed the accountability and I needed someone to hold me to uh, you know, to be excited for my workouts and to get pumped up at times when uh you just needed that extra level of motivation to get out the door. And we were kind of at this breaking point. It was just Emily and I, and Emily was in this vicious cycle of injuries and I was doing marathoning by myself. And that's a lot of lonely miles and felt like it was a little bit unhealthy. The amount of time I was spending in my own head running and, you know, I had an amazing support system. So I felt bad about complaining, but I just said, you know, this is kind of I'm at a crossroads here. It's either I move on and do something else or we add more women and I think it could be a great thing. So we slowly started adding um, a few women and they had a lot of success. And I think that just, it just built upon each success that each athlete had individually. And I think it just drew other women saying, you know what, like they look like they're having fun and they're doing really well. And yeah, they work hard, but I want to be a part of that success and I want to work hard and find out what I'm capable of. And I think it's contagious and people want to be a part of that environment. And so in a selfish way, we added more women because I knew I wasn't going to stick around if I if I didn't have other women to work with. So there for sure was a selfish component. I knew it would make me better. And as a result, like I was very much willing to share the knowledge that I've attained over my career and try to help them be better because. It feels good to look around in our training environment and just be like, "Man, there's a lot of badass women here." You know, Gwen has a gold medal and just had a baby, and she's going to try to make switch sports, make an Olympic team and a in the marathon, and um, we've got just so much talent and hard work. And I take so much confidence, and I get the swagger when they perform well. Like it makes me feel so good. Like there are times when they perform well and it feels way better than anything I've personally achieved. And so it's just like, no matter what, whoever's competing, I get this sense of fulfillment and it keeps me motivated to keep going. So it's been a really fun couple of years. And, um, I think, yeah, this, this next two years, specifically leading into Tokyo, there's, there's a lot of special things and a lot of fun stories to share within our team that, um, I think people are going to love to hear about.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's pretty incredible just to see the results that have come out of the group in the last few years. And it just seems like you're all genuinely very supportive of one another, which isn't always the case amongst training groups. So um, kudos to the Bowerman Track Club women uh, yeah, on creating I, something special.
1: You know, I think in that aspect, um, it's all about like the the leadership and uh, creating the environment that is conducive for that. And I think Jerry's background from college coaching really kind of creates and cultivates that environment of excellence and supportiveness. And so that college background and that college success, I think is what how it translates really well to this elite level.
0: Let's talk about Jerry for a second. Not much is known about him outside of the inner running circles. He keeps a pretty low profile. Um, he's behind the scenes as a coach. How would you describe his coaching style and philosophy and how has, you know, his influence on you just helped take your marathon career to the next level. Cause never really coached marathoners before he started working with you. Um, I think 2010 was your debut. So, um, how, like, let's talk about Jerry for a little bit and how, um, he has impacted your career.
1: Yeah. So I switched coaches from coach cook to Jerry because I knew I wanted to tackle the marathon and, uh, coach cook for sure was a phenomenal coach on the track, but I felt like I needed, uh, to start running over like 80 miles a week in order to be good at the marathon. And, um, I just didn't feel like, uh, coach cook at the time had that background enough to, to help me get to that level. So I came to Jerry specifically saying like, help me groom me to becoming a marathon. I know you haven't coached the marathon, but I could just tell with, what he did with his men in cross country. And I had heard that they, you know, ran a lot of miles and he had just some grinding workouts. And I felt like that was going to be a good fit for, for me. So, um, it was a big learning process. And I think up until this last year, um, there was quite a lot of experimenting to try to figure out the recipe for our marathoning program. Um, I've had some great successes, but also I think some underperformances, um just based on trying to figure out what was best so in the past Jerry and I uh would look at if I was getting ready for let's just say the Boston marathon in the past we would do two cycles of altitude i'd go up the month of january and then i'd come down to sea level in portland for about 4 or 5 weeks um hit some really hard workouts and then go back up the month before um the marathon and either try to go straight into the marathon from that or come down again for another couple weeks um and then go to the marathon. And if you add up all those weeks, it's a long buildup. Mm-hmm. And the two altitude stints, to me, I find quite exhausting and tiring because altitude is just hard. Um, so, you know, we did that style of buildup, which, you know, earned some great performances, you know, helped me make um, Olympic teams and, you know, run in uh, 221 and get an American course record in Boston But I felt like I was showing up to the start line um, a little overcooked, like the buildup was too long for me to sustain physically and mentally. And so I kept on kind of prodding him and pushing him to, based on how I was feeling, to kind of shorten the buildup and just do one altitude stint. And I think originally he thought, oh, well, Shalane just doesn't want to go to altitude twice. (laughs) She doesn't want to be away from home. And that wasn't really the case. Um, I just really felt like I was underperforming actually. Um, So in this last year, um, the first time we changed our buildup was for Amy, for the world champs. Um, And instead we just do one altitude stint and then we come out and really sharpen up the last month heading into the race. And um, it was kind of a gamble and just kind of had to just like throw, I think what all the athletes here, if they're successful, it's because we just kind of throw caution to the wind and give Jerry the full reins and just say, do what you think is best. And I think the athletes that do that the most have the most success under Jerry because they just believe fully in what he, the plan is and what he tells you to do. So um, Amy just threw herself into the new program and obviously yielded a great result, which then I turned around and got so much confidence from her result and was able to fully invest myself into my New York preparation, seeing Amy's success. So it's amazing just how we feed off of each other and each other's successes. Cause I think I would have been nervous, um, had Amy's not gone that well, but it went so well. And she warned me of some of the, uh, concerns or, you know, things that made her a little nervous. And so I went in just completely prepared. And, um, I think now that's the recipe for us is we just do the one altitude stint and the buildup up is shorter and we just come ready to rock. After, um, a month down at sea level, we hit some really great hard workouts and, um, we just feel really prepared with this new system. So there's been some experimentation over the, the years, um, and fine tuning to just get our best results and um, so, you know, I'm open to that. I'm open mm-hmm. to the the fact that Jerry doesn't know it all, but yet he listens all the time to what we have to say. And so um, we've worked together on that process.
0: How important is that communication in general for a healthy coach-athlete relationship to be able to have that, that give and take and that back and forth?
1: Yeah, so like I said, like um, you can tell, you can give Jerry feedback. He may not... Um, Acknowledge it right away, or change it right away, but he's he's always listening. And um, I like to jokingly and endearingly call him our benevolent dictator because um he does he expects you to just be all in and no compromises. And you know, we we joke that he's our life dictator, too. like we we basically don't go off for a weekend without consulting with him. and um there's he he likes to know about, you know, every little, basically, detail of our life if it's going to affect our running. And so he is all in, in terms of his coaching and he expects us to be all in. So the expectations are high on all parties. Like he knows that I expect a lot from him and vice versa. Um, but there's constant communication and whether he changes it right away or not, but he's always, always listening. And I think what sometimes some athletes, uh, we don't, necessarily know our plans fully like he has it in his head and so people will ask us oh well when are you racing next and we always say oh we don't know like jerry will just tell us when we're ready and you know like shelby this past weekend at usa indoor she she didn't know whether she was going to be doubling at worlds or not and she was waiting for jerry's decision on that and we just have full faith and just that he's going to pick you know the best possible situation for us to be successful
0: Let's switch gears a little bit, hit rewind. Let's go back to New York last fall. Uh, You just talked about, you know, your various marathon successes. That was arguably the biggest one in your career and just a monumental day for American distance running as a whole. Um, How has that performance or that result changed your life? How has your life changed since the New York City marathon? Um, Loaded question, I know.
1: Yeah. Well, I think we all have something in our life that we dream about and we dream about like what it would feel like if you achieved it, whether it's to write a book, um, to get a certain degree, um, a certain promotion at work, um, you know, marry a certain person. I mean, we all have goals for ourselves, whether we share them or not. And we imagine what it would feel like. And I think that's what like motivates us to keep working hard at it is like, Oh, imagine that. Like, what would that feel like to do that? And I have indulged in that dream since I was a little kid standing on Hereford and Boylston watching my dad run a marathon. And I remember like indulging in that dream of, man, what would it feel like to win a major city marathon? And, um, and that to me was like my wildest dream that I dreamed up, um, when I was little, like that, that to me was even bigger than making the Olympics for some reason. Like that was my wildest dream and to actually have that come true Exceeded what I ever thought it would feel like, actually. (laughs) Like in my head, I dreamed it as being amazing. And then when it actually happened, it felt even better than I imagined, which is hard to do. (laughs) So I described kind of like the whole week after the marathon, week to 10 days is just, I couldn't stop smiling. Like I think I was like smiling in my sleep. I felt like I, I had attained a lot more wrinkles because I just like my face was a permanently stuck in a smile. And once I actually kind of came down a little bit to some normalcy, it felt like I was like, I called it a happiness hangover. Like I felt like I had a headache, like it, I was in a state of bliss, but it was like I felt um, depleted of energy because I was just so ridiculously happy. And I don't know that anything athletically could ever top that. Um, it would be so fun to have that kind of feeling again, but I recognize that it may be a once in a lifetime, and so I have definitely tried to savor and soak up that moment because they it's professionally my my proudest moment for sure.
0: You've been in a Super Bowl ad you've been on various TV shows and talk shows, what's been the kind of the coolest byproduct um, of your victory in New York City or coolest opportunity that you've gotten to take advantage of since then?
1: Um, yeah, they were all, all very cool. Um, I would, I would say for sure, probably being contacted in the offer to be in a Super Bowl ad only because I was thinking about track and field athletes and the opportunities that were presented and Sometimes I feel like we don't necessarily get our moment to shine. And I think Usain Bolt has for sure held the sport to a higher standard because of his crossover into the mainstream media. And when I was offered with Michael Ultra to be in a Super Bowl ad, I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it for various reasons. Maybe I should. And then I thought, what other athletes have been in a Super Bowl commercial, like in track and field? And the only other athlete that I could really distinctively probably think of is a Usain Bolt for like Gatorade, or I don't even know what commercials he's been in. He's been in so many, but, and I thought, well, this is an amazing opportunity, not just for me, but for our sport, because I don't feel like we're given that many opportunities to do something like this. So to me, I just felt like that was very special, not just for me, but just hopefully crossing over and showing that marathoning and track and field can have a presence as well on a big world stage.
0: Let's go back to the race itself, specifically the very end when you started to pull away. I mean, you were motoring toward the end there. Um, And I mean, you're in the moment, we're watching it kind of from the sidelines and seeing it all unfold. What was going through your mind kind of in that final 5K, four miles, knowing that you had Mary Cataney behind you, um, but you had the momentum at that point and that victory was I don't know, less than 20 minutes away at that point, if you could, you could hold on, describe, describe those final miles of the New York city marathon for me.
1: Yeah. So my, my game plan going in was just to mirror, uh, Mary, whatever she ran, I was just going to cover it. Um, so having watched her pretty much throughout the whole race and just kind of dissecting her form, her breathing, trying to read all the physical signs and trying, I haven't run against her a lot but just a few times and watched her enough that, um, I could just tell, like, she wasn't going to go super hard that day. Like I could just tell she was holding back and, um, no one was wanting to take the lead because in my mind, she was, she was the head honcho. She was the top dog and everyone was, was looking towards her. So once it got closer to the finish, I was gaining a lot more confidence um, there was one moment, maybe with about five miles to go, that Daska threw down a really hard surge. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, like I can't sustain this to the finish. But then I remember Jerry multiple times in training saying to me, there's always these surges and you always have to remember that if they're really hard surges and it's hard for you, you have to stay on it because likelihood is they can't sustain it to the finish. There's going to be some Backing off. There's going to be a reprieve. There's going to be a breather, and you just have to get through that hard surge and stay on it. And before you know it, there's going to be a time to take a deep breath. And just as I was like questioning whether I could cover the move, we had a nice little breather through a water station, and then Daska decided she wanted to go again. And this was about three miles to go, and so I I was ready to go again by that time. And when she threw in that surge, I expected it to be to the finish. I thought, okay, three miles out, she this could is this is it. This it's is it. the move. So I covered it. And then she didn't it wasn't very like uh long of a surge. And before I knew it, I was in the lead. And I thought, well, I'm not gonna back off now. Now I'm just gonna go hard to the finish, whatever that is. Like whatever's in me, I'm gonna pour it out over the last three miles. And if that means third, so be it. But I'm gonna just run as hard as I can. And I visualized myself in practice and in training and on my own training grounds in Portland, where I've executed some, you know, lifetime best workouts. And I just said, I took my mental space and I went back to those training grounds, saw the Island, um, Jerry on the bike, uh, Alistair helping to pace me, Amy cheering from a car. I visualized all those little components of my support system. And I put my head down and just said, I'm in Portland. It's no bigger, like I tried to pretend I'm not in New York City. I'm not winning the New York City Marathon. I tried to just bring it back to like what feels really comfortable and normal to me and not be overwhelmed by the moment. So I did just that in the last three miles and I couldn't tell at all how close the other women were to me. And I was hoping strangers on the street would say something, but they didn't. And they just kept cheering for me. So I thought that was a good sign, but I thought also, well, I am the only American up front here. So maybe they're just cheering for me, but I had no idea. So I just ran scared the entire way and, you know, come to find out when I finished, it's, you know, I, I won by over a minute, but I had no idea. I just ran as if they were going to be pouncing on me at any second. And I didn't want the moment to overcome me. And I didn't want to celebrate or get too emotional too soon until I could literally see the finish line tape, because as we all know, the marathon is just a nasty event, and the minute that you seem to get a little cocky, it's like it it humbles you so quickly. So, I I wouldn't let myself indulge in in celebrating until I saw that finish
0: line tape. And when you did see that finish line tape, the emotion <laughs> was visible on your face and out of your mouth at the time. Yeah. Um, take me through those final few meters and just what that level of excitement felt like when you realized, okay, I've I've got this. I'm going to break the tape and I'm going to win my first major marathon.
1: Yeah, um I think I just the sight of that finish line tape was just gorgeous. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Um and I felt mm. so good and so strong and so composed and I think when we have these, you know, breakthrough spectacular performances, you just feel like you can do no wrong. And so I felt incredible. Um It's like if you had said the the finish line was a mile further, I could have kept going like that. I was just on cloud nine and had such an adrenaline rush, but I felt such a sense of validation. Um, and I don't mean to be negative, but I feel like I've had moments in my career that have been stolen from me and opportunities that have been missed because of people not operating and athletes and agents not operating in the right way. And so, you know, I've been notified years later of, you know, someone testing positive and I actually should have been fifth or I should have been second. And I was just tired of those moments. And I was finally felt like a sense of validation, like no one could ever take this away from me. And I was just so psyched that I was able to do it. And I wasn't going to earn the title of New York City Marathon champion like 10 years later, I was going to own like earn it and own it in that moment. And it could never be taken away. And so I just felt so validated that I kept pursuing the dream because it seemed really dark and dismal at times. And so that, I think that's, that was a huge component of my celebration of just like, I finally freaking did it. I couldn't believe it. And the fact that it came after a major injury just felt even better, like having to battle back from, you know, a place of really an ultimate low to then this huge high and, to have my family there and everyone I really cared about be present and um it was just a huge moment and it to be like on the anniversary of you know forty years exactly that an American woman had done this since then um just felt like it was meant to be so
0: now before New York City last fall, you hadn't raced a marathon since Rio. you had hoped to race Boston last year, but we know that injury kept you out of that event um. And I think, you know, in retrospect, like how beneficial was that break between marathons, like going over a year between marathons rather than doing like the typical, you know, once in the fall, once in the spring, once in the fall, once in the spring. Like what did that break allow you to do and how did it um, kind of catapult you into New York last fall?
1: Yeah, as professional athletes, I think we're always setting more goals and why would we skip a marathon if you're healthy? Or why would you skip certain things? So I've never had a reason to not go run a race or not perform because that is my job. So this injury, in a way, was a giant blessing in disguise. I think I was starting to get to the point of just um, not micro fatigue, but macro fatigue. And I, I saw signs of it here and there. And even my dad would say something. And but I would just be like, "Oh, my dad's just being overprotective." And um, but I could feel like at times I just didn't feel like myself. Like I felt overly tired a lot. And um, so with ten weeks of no running, and I didn't go crazy cross training. I I just did just enough to feel like good. But I didn't go crazy because my back was still really painful for a long time. So I couldn't do too much actually. Um, and at that point in my life, I uh, had two awesome foster girls and working on a cookbook. And I did some uh, commentating and experimented with some other avenues in my life and indulged in those. And so I actually, for a little bit during that off time, was bummed for about a week or two. And then I, I actually really enjoyed my downtime and um, I actually almost, I kind of felt guilty that I, I didn't mind not running. It obviously was hard to be in Boston and sitting at the finish line and talking about all the athletes, but in a way I was good at kind of compartmentalizing and realizing like this just wasn't meant to be for me at this moment, but I can still celebrate running and because I love it and seeing everyone else so excited. And so I was a little worried though, that that was like a bad sign that I didn't mind not running for a bit. But I feel like I think you were that-
0: losing your edge a little bit?
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was like, uh-oh, like am I ever going to want to go back? Um, but I knew deep down I did. Uh, but it just goes to show like I probably really needed that break, but I did feel a little guilty that I didn't mind not running for a while. Like I was having so much fun doing other things. Um, so... Yeah. But once I started getting back to running and back training, then the fire was like ignited like crazy. And I felt I, so much better than I had. Like I came back and Amy's like, somehow, I think you're fitter than before you got hurt. And she's like, how did you do that? And I go, I don't know. It's weird, Amy. I go, I must've really needed this break. Like I feel so much better. I can't even explain it. Like I must've been so tired and just not realized it. And so she was like joking. She's like, you need to get hurt more often. Like you look so much better. You like, you just have more energy. And so, yeah, giant blessing. I never, ever would have taken that break. Um, and I think it paid off huge. It allowed me a nice long, slow build up to New York and get fit on the track first and then, then build the miles. And, um, it, in all honesty, I think I'm a one marathon, a woman type of person. I think I I do a great job doing one marathon a year. I think two at the elite levels. It's really brutal. And even after New York right now, um, I had a hard time getting back into it um, because I was just so busy after New York that trying to train and do um, all the other stuff was quite tiring and taxing. And I wasn't sure um, that I was going to have the good energy that I needed. But once I got um, all the other stuff kind of went away all the other media stuff i've been I've been feeling so much better again, and I feel like actually training feels like a vacation compared to what I was doing so <laughs> um but yeah that that break was huge
0: well, minus a few injuries including the back injury that kept you out of Boston last year. I mean, you've remained relatively healthy throughout your entire career, high school, college, and as a professional, which, I mean, that's really impressive given that you're now 36 and you've been training and racing hard for over 20 years. Um, what do you attribute that kind of overall level of, of good health and being able to stay injury-free for the majority of it too?
1: Um, I think I have a gift in terms of in general, I'm I am usually really good at reading my body and usually knowing when um, to back off. Now, because I had that string of like 20 years of uninterrupted training, there was like this macro fatigue that I had built up, but I had been able to get away with that because I I just I'm instinctually pretty good at recognizing the difference between um, pain that's temporary and pain that's like uh-oh, not good. Um, gotta really back off, kind of thing. But so I think there's some instinctual uh, gift that I've been given. But I also think I I definitely take the time to do the little things to make sure I stay healthy. I I'm I'm like that scaredy cat that you know if I see a dog coming down the street, I'm like crossing over the street. Or you know I I take getting massage therapy really serious and. I don't overcomplicate it, though. I I realize that for me, getting great sleep and eating well is huge. So it's usually I I see a lot of young athletes come into our program and they probably indulge too much in doing other extracurricular activities and then it affects their running and then they get injured because they're doing too much. And I think being part of being a good athlete is at times really being all in and focusing really singularly, um, on one thing. And if that's your goal. And so, you know, I've described it before, like the pendulum swings really extreme for me. Like when I'm preparing for a specific race, like there's really not much else that's going on other than preparing for that particular race. And then once it's over, then I let the pendulum swing to the extreme of really not training much and really indulging in, um, you know, my family and, uh, foods that I don't n- normally eat or, you know, not getting enough sleep. But so I think being extreme in terms of just taking care of myself during my buildups is probably, um, what's allowed me to really keep going for a long time.
0: The other day you tweeted something along the lines of, I don't really feel like going for a run right now. Um, <laughs> and if I had to bet money, I'd put a hundred dollars <laughs> down that you put your shoes on and went out the door. Uh, for a few miles. And I think as runners, we've all been there. But how do you navigate those moments when you just really don't feel like going out the door?
1: Yeah, we all feel that way. Um, so the other day, I had just gotten a massage and, it, you know, I was in this nice, warm office. And I get out and it's snowing and it's 20 degrees. And I have to go run for an hour by myself. And um, then I have to drive another 45 minutes back up to my house where I'm staying. And so, for sure i was like i really don't want to go run right now <laughs> like i would much rather just drive up to my house have some hot cocoa watch the snowfall. but i knew i was going to go run but sometimes i think it it's important to to show and to do. sometimes it's just the act of complaining or venting and then you're fine so like in that moment i didn't have anyone to vent it to and so i was like ah I'm just going to share it with the Twitter verse. And it's amazing. People like really can relate to that. And they like to know that like you have these struggle moments. And I think that's important to show that, you know, not every day is a picnic. And, um, but of course I went for a run and I got it done. And, you know, at various moments, I was just chanting like Boston to myself because that's the only reason why I'm out there doing it is because I want to have a chance on April 16th. And so it's worth it, but for sure, there's days where you're just like, uh, why? Why am I doing this? For sure. <laughs>
0: um, leading up to New York last fall, you had said before the race that you were approaching it like mentally as if it was going to be your last marathon. Um, obviously, it wasn't your last marathon. You're getting ready for Boston on April 16th. But are you taking that same mentality into your next marathon here, a little less than two months from now?
1: Yeah, I am uh, surviving on a week to week, month to month basis in terms of my athletics and running. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't know what's beyond April 16th, but I think that's okay. It allows me to really, really live in the moment. And there's no more big picture planning for me, like in the past where we'd have these four year cycles and we'd map out what that meant. And we'd work back from the big Olympic date. And, but there's none of that in my career right now. It's, it's literally just going to each race with, knowing it could be the last or I could keep going. And, um, normally as a planner and kind of an OCD type of person, I would not like that. But for me, that's, what's working best. I think to not get ahead of myself and really do everything I know that I can do right now and not worry about saving my body or my mental state for anything beyond that. It's it, there's no self-preservation in this. It's, it's you know if I if I get injured uh, now um, then so be it like I'm gonna go in and run my 120 mile weeks more than I ever have and give myself a chance because I'm I'm not waiting and saving it for anything else.
0: Does anything feel different going into Boston this year after your win at New York last fall? You talked earlier about how it's been your dream since you were a little girl to win that big city marathon, and now that you've done that, um, does it feel like? anything from here on out is just icing on the cake
1: um i definitely feel like a sense of uh like peace with my running for sure like i feel like if i did if if boston doesn't go great or if i couldn't get to the start line for some reason um i feel very much at peace with myself because i did get that validating win and that dream is fulfilled but it's just not quite the way i imagined it like i imagined it being boston so it's like that little piece of me that's like oh, i just i have to just try one more time for sure to to just give myself that chance and if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen but um there's still that fire and that motivation to do like it's addicting to have a great performance you always want another one um and that's why i considered Stopping in after New York is because, like, how how can I top this? And the only thing that can top this, or be on the same level, um, probably can't top it, but be on the same level is is winning in Boston, just because of what the people in the city mean to me. So um, there's just as much fire, but I definitely feel like at peace, which I think is actually a good thing. I feel very calm and calculated with my approach. And I feel very confident that I know how to get the most out of myself now.
0: How much do you think about the strength of the U.S. women's field at this year's Boston Marathon? Or are you just more focused on what you need to do right now to get as fit as possible?
1: Right now, I tell myself in training, just like I did in New York, is get as fit as possible so that you can't make... A bad decision in the race so that your body literally won't allow you to make a bad decision because you're so fit that anything that's thrown at you, you're just, it's literally going to flow out of you. You're going to be able to just cover the moves without having to think too much because you're just that fit. So I'm working on being the fittest version of me. And if that's, that's what I bring to the table, then I, I think that's good things can happen. So I'm not, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not really thinking about the other woman right now. I think once I get fitter and then I start to see where I'm at, then I start to calculate like, okay, what's the best case scenario for me to do well? And then I start thinking about my competition, but I think I'm too far out right now because I, I don't really know my fitness yet. I'm, I'm just running massive amounts right now and no real serious workouts are going to be done until the last month. So, um, right now it's just, just trying to get my legs as tough as they possibly can get because as you know, Boston is not kind on the legs. So
0: (laughs) no, no, it is not. (laughs) What, what types of workouts will you do or have you done in the past to help prepare for those specific demands of Boston?
1: Um, you know, we haven't, the only thing that we've done really specific is I back in, uh, 2014, I trained on the course once a month, starting in the fall all the way up until the marathon. And I felt like that really paid big dividends because I was able to run 222 in the course on that day. Um, And I knew the course in and out, and my legs were calloused to it, and I felt great running it. And so I take that knowledge and um, I just visualize the course a lot in my training. Um, As terms of like physically, doing something specific to Boston, I just choose hillier routes and just tell myself that it's okay if my legs feel a little bit more beat up because that's what I want. Because I'll never forget in my first Boston in 2013, halfway through my legs hurting and like feeling shaky and weak. And um, I thought, well, that's not a good sign. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I just... More than anything, if I run a lot of miles, my legs will get so strong that they they won't get that way. But I'll, I'll choose. I've been choosing hillier routes and hillier runs, um, just to test myself a little bit more than I typically would.
0: Got it. A couple more questions before we wrap up here. Um, mm-hmm. You had touched earlier on, you know, just some of the the negative chatter that happens in the sport. There's doping and cheating and corruption and finger pointing. I mean, you name it. Um, but there's also a lot of exciting things happening in the sport right now, like Boston here in a couple of months. I think that's going to be a big day for fans of, of distance running, especially American distance running, but your own pursuits aside, who or what in the sport of running is exciting you right now?
1: Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I'm a bit biased in this answer <laughs> because
0: that's fun. <fine. laughs> Subjective opinions are welcome here. <laughs>
1: um, I, I, I'm just very excited about my current uh, group of women that I get to work with, um, and I think what's interesting is I, I I'm seeing I'm, I'm, maybe I'm like I said biased, but I'm seeing more of a trend to this group training mentality, and um, take for example like. Emma Coburn, um, she could have easily just gone off on her own um, with her husband Joe and and just become one of the best steeplechasers in the world by herself. But she realized, like I I did pretty quickly, that it could be a pretty lonely pursuit, and it's really honestly not that fun to do it alone. And so I'm ex- what excites me is seeing the trend towards. Um, kind of like cultivating these environments of excellence and these group training mentalities, because I think that's has been missing um, having these groups of people to kind of catapult themselves forward to another level. And so I watch, you know, someone like Emma and Joe, and like I said, they could have easily just done it on their own, but then started to bring in Aisha and um, uh, the 800 meter runner. I'm blanking on her name from Oklahoma. Um, but Yeah. Like I see this trend towards working collaboratively and it's only making people American distance running better. And so this trend towards group training just really has me excited and seeing specifically women, um, really elevating other women is what excites me the most.
0: I'm jumping around a little bit here, but, um, for the listeners who don't know, I've, I've known Shalane's dad for quite a few years. He used to be the shoe rep, uh, for the running store I worked at in Massachusetts. And like any proud father, he liked to come in and brag about how well his daughter was doing. And at the time I was running pretty similar times to Shalane. And I had joked to him that my goal was always to. Sh- just say a few steps ahead of her. And he always liked to tell me that if she were here right now and you were to race to the end of the road, there was no way that you would, you would beat her. She's just too competitive. (laughs) Um, And your competitiveness is uh, the stuff of legend. I would say, where does it come from?
1: Uh, Oh, I don't know. I think it's just like, I don't, it's, it's innate. It's just who I am. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's not, I don't. I mean I grew up in an environment where I was surrounded by runners and my parents were runners and they were my heroes so I just wanted to be like them and um I as a young girl I think I didn't have like a ton of self-confidence and I loved that running could give me that self-confidence and I think it's shifted now like I don't necessarily need the attention to feel good about myself now it's just like pushing a competition within me and pushing myself and so now like you know, back then it was, I was competitive because I wanted to beat the boys in grade school. And I liked that attention that it it earned beating boys. But now it's, uh, yeah, like now it's about a little bit leaving some type of legacy and trying to have a high standard for myself because then it only elevates, you know, the people around me and their high standards. And so that's like my competition is, Really, I'm in a competition with myself at this point um, to just to get every little bit out of myself. And so that's I guess that's where it stems from. I'm just really competitive with myself
0: in the end. <laughs> and that segues pretty well into my, my last question. We've got Boston ahead of us, or you have Boston ahead of you, I should say. And then who knows? Um, well,
1: you too, right? Yeah, me You're too, running.
0: Me too as well. This, this isn't about me. This is about you. So you know, beyond Boston, we don't know what the, the racing future holds for you, but it's safe to say that the majority of your competitive career is behind you at this point. So when all is said and done, how would you like Shalane Flanagan to be remembered?
1: Oh God. Um, I think what's been the most rewarding and impactful for sure is um, having this women's training group. And what excites me is what's really great is Nike has been so supportive of me through since 2004. I've been with Nike and supported my running and enabled me to work with a coach like Jerry Schumacher and given me the facilities and um, the capacity to just really push myself by coming up to altitude camps and getting the therapy I needed. And they have also encouraged me and are going to support me in my next, you know, my next stage of life. And that is to help coach the Bowerman women with Jerry. So that's, what's like exciting to me is I think that's where like my legacy and that's what's going to hopefully be the most impactful is, um, you know, my, cultivating this environment and pushing other women along and i think that's hopefully what i'll be remembered for you know that i yeah i won some races and um i was pretty good but i think where i overlap is with these other women and having you know not just my accomplishments but then bringing along these other women to the to the next level and have them exceed me you know i see someone like shelby um, taking down some of my records in 3K and 5K and to um, to have someone that's been at that top level, but then have their athletes that they have been working with, have them exceed them is, I think, hopefully the legacy that I leave.
0: Awesome. I think that's a great place to put a pin on it. Shalane, thank you so much for your time. Before we call it here, where can listeners follow the rest of your journey toward Boston online?
1: Where can they follow my journey? Yeah, um, best place
0: to connect with you.
1: Oh, well, I guess uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm not super responsive, but <laughs> I will try to be. Um, but yeah, that's that's where I keep people up to date. My dad loves to check in on what I'm doing via Instagram and send me text messages after about the beautiful photography or whatever. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. And that's at Shalane Flanagan, correct?
1: Uh, I believe so. Yes, at Shalane Flanagan.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again. And we will see you here in a few weeks, Eh, more than a few weeks at Boston.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Good luck with your training.
0: Thank you. Same to you. And that's a wrap on this week's podcast. What'd you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, somewhere in the middle. It doesn't matter. Head over to iTunes, leave a review. That really helps out the show. I really appreciate it. Um, Also, if you would like to support my work directly, you can make a donation via Patreon at patreon.com slash The Morning Shakeout. Much gratitude to those of you who have already made a monthly pledge, which helps me to produce this show, but also lets me put out great content week in and week out. And finally, if you're not subscribed to The Morning Shakeout newsletter, shame on you. I'm just kidding. Head over to themorningshakeout.com. Uh, you can subscribe there. I send it out on Tuesday mornings. I write about running and a whole slew of other interesting topics, and I really think you'll enjoy it. So until next time, I'm Mario Fraoli and thank you for listening to my podcast.